Chapter thirty seven of Kenilworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Kenilworth by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter thirty seven. You have displaced the mirth, broke the good meeting with most admired disorder. Macbeth. It was afterwards remembered that during the banquets and revels which occupied the remainder of this eventful day, the bearing of Leicester and of Barney were totally different from their usual demeanour. Sir Richard Varney had been held rather a man of counsel and of action than a votary of pleasure. Business, whether civil or military, seemed always to be his proper sphere. And while in festivals and revels, although he well understood how to trick them up and present them, his own part was that of a mere spectator. Or if he exercised his wit, it was in a rough, caustic, and severe manner, rather as if he scoffed at the exhibition, and the guests, than shared the common pleasure. But upon the present day his character seemed changed. He mixed among the younger courtiers and ladies, and appeared for the moment to be actuated by a spirit of light-hearted gaiety, which rendered him a match for the liveliest. Those who had looked upon him as a man given up to graver and more ambitious pursuits, a bitter sneerer and passer of sarcasms at the expense of those who, taking life as they find it, were disposed to snatch at each pastime it presents, now perceived with astonishment that his wit could carry as smooth an edge as their own, his laugh be as lively and his brow as unclouded. By what art of damnable hypocrisy, he could draw this veil of gaiety over the black thoughts of one of the worst of human bosoms, must remain unintelligible to all but his compeers, if any such ever existed. But he was a man of extraordinary powers, and those powers were unhappily dedicated, in all their energy, to the very worst of purposes. It was entirely different with Lester. However habituated his mind usually was to play the part of a good courtier, and appear gay, assiduous, and free from all care, but that of enhancing the pleasure of the moment. While his bosom internally throbbed with the pangs of unsatisfied ambition, jealousy, or resentment, his heart had now a yet more dreadful guest, whose workings could not be overshadowed or suppressed. And he might read in his vacant eye and troubled brow that his thoughts were far absent from the scenes in which he was compelling himself to play a part. He looked, moved, and spoke as if by a succession of continued efforts, and it seemed as if his will had in some degree lost the promptitude of command over the acute mind and goodly form of which it was the regent. His actions and gestures, instead of appearing the consequence of simple volition, seemed, like those of an automaton, to wait the revolution of some internal machinery ere they could be performed and his words fell from him piecemeal, interrupted, as if he had first to think what he was to say, and then how it was to be said, and as if, after all, it was only by an effort of continued attention that he completed a sentence without forgetting both the one and the other. The singular effects which these distractions of mine produced upon the behavior and conversation of the most accomplished courtier of England as they were visible to the lowest and dullest menial who approached his person, could not escape the notice of the most intelligent princess of the age. 
nor is there the least doubt that the alternate negligence and irregularity of his manner would have called down Elizabeth's severe displeasure on the Earl of Leicester, had it not occurred to her to account for it by supposing that the apprehension of that displeasure which she had expressed towards him with such vivacity that very morning was dwelling upon the spirits of her favourite, and, spite of his efforts to the contrary, distracted the usual graceful tenor of his mien and the charms of his conversation. When this idea, so flattering to female vanity, had once obtained possession of her mind, it proved a full and satisfactory apology for the numerous errors and mistakes of the Earl of Leicester, and the watchful circle around observed with astonishment that, instead of resenting his repeated negligence, and want of even ordinary attention, although these were points on which she was usually extremely punctilious, the Queen sought, on the contrary, to afford him time and means to recollect himself, and deigned to assist him in doing so, with an indulgence which seemed altogether inconsistent with her usual character. It was clear, however, that this could not last much longer, and that Elizabeth must finally put another and more severe construction on Leicester's uncourteous conduct, when the Earl was summoned by Varney to speak with him in a different apartment. After having had the message twice delivered to him, he rose and was about to withdraw, as it were, by instinct, then stopped, and turning round, entreated permission of the Queen to absent himself for a brief space upon matters of pressing importance. "'Go, my lord,' said the Queen. "'We are aware our presence must occasion sudden and unexpected occurrences, which require to be provided for on the instant. Yet, my lord, as you would have us believe ourselves your welcome and honoured guest, we entreat you to think less of our good cheer, and favour us with more of your good countenance than we have this day enjoyed. For whether prince or peasant be the guest, the welcome of the host will always be the better part of the entertainment. Go, my lord, and we trust to see you return with an unwrinkled brow, and those free thoughts which you are wont to have at the disposal of your friends. Lester only bowed low in answer to this rebuke, and retired. At the door of the apartment he was met by Varney, who eagerly drew him apart, and whispered in his ear, "'All is well.' "'Has Master seen her?' said the Earl. "'He has, my lord, and as she would neither answer his queries, nor allege any reason for her refusal, he will give full testimony that she labours under a mental disorder, and may be best committed to the charge of her friends.' The opportunity is therefore free to remove her as we proposed. But Tressilian, said Lester. He will not know of her departure for some time, replied Varney. It shall take place this very evening, and to-morrow he shall be cared for. No, by my soul, answered Lester. I will take vengeance on him with mine own hand. You, my lord, and on so inconsiderable a man as Tressilian— no, my lord, he hath long wished to visit foreign parts. Trust him to me. I will take care he returns not hither to tell tales. Not so by heaven, Varney, exclaimed Lester. Inconsiderable do you call an enemy that hath had power to wound me so deeply that my whole afterlife must be one scene of remorse and misery. No, rather than forego the right of doing myself justice with mine own hand on that accursed villain, 
I will unfold the whole truth at Elizabeth's footstool, and let her vengeance descend at once on them and on myself. Barney saw, with great alarm, that his lord was wrought up to such a pitch of agitation, that if he gave not way to him he was perfectly capable of adopting the desperate resolution which he had announced, and which was instant ruin to all the schemes of ambition which Varney had formed for his patron and for himself. But the earl's rage seemed at once uncontrollable and deeply concentrated, and while he spoke his eyes shot fire, his voice trembled with excess of passion, and the light foam stood on his lip. His confidant made a bold and successful effort to obtain the mastery of him, even in this hour of emotion. "'My lord,' he said, leading him to a mirror, "'behold your reflection in that glass, and think if these agitated features belong to one who, in a condition so extreme, is capable of forming a resolution for himself.' "'What, then, wouldst thou make me?' said Lester." struck at the change in his own physiognomy, though offended at the freedom with which Varney made the appeal. Am I to be thy ward, thy vassal, the property and subject of my servant? No, my lord, said Varney firmly, but be master of yourself and of your own passion. My lord, I, your born servant, am ashamed to see how poorly you bear yourself in the storm of fury. Go to Elizabeth's feet, confess your marriage, impeach your wife and her paramour of adultery, and avow yourself amongst all your peers, the widow who married a country girl, and was cousined by her and her book-learned gallant. Go, my lord, but first take farewell of Richard Varney, with all the benefits you ever conferred on him. He served the noble, the lofty, the high-minded Lester, and was more proud of depending on him than he would be of commanding thousands. But the abject lord— who stoops to every adverse circumstance, whose judicious resolves are scattered like chaff before every wind of passion. Him Richard Varney serves not. He is as much above him in constancy of mind as beneath him in rank and fortune. Varney spoke thus without hypocrisy, for though the firmness of his mind which he boasted was hardness and impenetrability, yet he really felt the ascendancy which he vaunted, while the interest which he actually felt in the fortunes of Lester gave unusual emotion to his voice and manner. Lester was overpowered by his assumed superiority. It seemed to the unfortunate Earl as if his last friend was about to abandon him. He stretched his hand towards Varney as he uttered the words, "'Do not leave me. What wouldst thou have me do?' "'Be thyself, my noble master,' said Varney, touching the earl's hand with his lips, after having respectfully grasped it in his own. "'Be yourself, superior to those storms of passion which wreck inferior minds. Are you the first who has been cousined in love, the first whom a vain and licentious woman has cheated into an affection which she has afterwards scorned and misused?' And will you suffer yourself to be driven frantic because you have not been wiser than the wisest men whom the world has seen? Let her be as if she had not been. Let her pass from your memory as unworthy of ever having held a place there. Let your strong resolve of this morning, which I have both courage, zeal, and means enough to execute, be like 
the fiat of a superior being, a passionless act of justice. She hath deserved death. Let her die. While he was speaking, the earl held his hand fast, compressed his lips hard, and frowned as if he laboured to catch from Varney a portion of the cold, ruthless, and dispassionate firmness which he recommended. When he was silent, the earl still continued to grasp his hand, until, with an effort at calm decision, he was able to articulate. Be it so, she dies, but one tear might be permitted. Not one, my lord, interrupted Varney, who saw by the quivering eye and convulsed cheek of his patron that he was about to give way to a burst of emotion. Not a tear. The time permits it not. Tressilian must be thought of. That indeed is a name, said the earl, to convert tears into blood. Varney, I have thought on this, and I have determined. Neither entreaty nor argument shall move me. Tressilian shall be my own victim. It is madness, my lord, but you are too mighty for me to bar your way to your revenge. Yet resolve at least to choose fitting time and opportunity, and to forbear him until these shall be found. Thou shalt order me in what thou wilt, said Lester. Only thwart me not in this. Then, my lord, said Barney, I first request of you to lay aside the wild, suspected, and half-frenzied demeanour, which hath this day drawn the eyes of all the court upon you, and which, but for the queen's partial indulgence, which she hath extended towards you, in a degree far beyond her nature, she had never given you the opportunity to atone for. Have I indeed been so negligent, said Lester, as one who awakes from a dream? I thought I had coloured it well. But fear nothing, my mind is now eased, I am calm." my horoscope shall be fulfilled, and that it may be fulfilled, I will tax to the highest every faculty of my mind. Fear me not, I say, I will to the queen instantly. Not thine own looks and language shall be more impenetrable than mine. Hast thou aught else to say? I must crave your signet ring, said Varney gravely, in token of those of your servants whom I must employ, that I possess your full authority in commanding their aid. Lester drew off the signet ring, which he commonly used, and gave it to Varney, with a haggard and stern expression of countenance, adding only in a low, half-whispered tone, but with terrific emphasis, the words, What thou dost, do quickly. Some anxiety and wonder took place, meanwhile, in the presence hall, at the prolonged absence of the noble lord of the castle, and great was the delight of his friends when they saw him enter, as a man from whose bosom, to all human seeming, a weight of care had been just removed. Amply did Lester that day redeem the pledge he had given to Barney, who soon saw himself no longer under the necessity of maintaining a character so different from his own as that which he had assumed in the earlier part of the day and gradually relapsed into the same grave, shrewd, caustic observer of conversation and incident which constituted his usual part in society. With Elizabeth, Lester played his game as one to whom her natural strength of talent and her weakness in one or two particular points were well known. He was too wary to exchange on a sudden the sullen personage 
which he had played before he retired with Barney. But on approaching her, it seemed softened into a melancholy, which had a touch of tenderness in it, and which, in the course of conversing with Elizabeth, and as she dropped in compassion one mark of favour after another to console him, passed into a flow of affectionate gallantry, the most assiduous, the most delicate, the most insinuating, yet at the same time the most respectful, with which a queen was ever addressed by a subject. Elizabeth listened as in a sort of enchantment. Her jealousy of power was lulled asleep, her resolution to forsake all social or domestic ties, and dedicate herself exclusively to the care of her people, began to be shaken, and once more the star of Dudley culminated in the court horizon. But Lester did not enjoy his triumph over nature and over conscience, without its being embittered to him, not only by the internal rebellion of his feelings against the violence which he exercised over them, but by many accidental circumstances which, in the course of the banquet, and during the subsequent amusements of the evening, jarred upon that nerve, the least vibration of which was agony. The courtiers were, for example, in the great hall, after having left the banqueting-room, awaiting the appearance of a splendid mask, which was the expected entertainment of this evening, when the Queen interrupted a wild career of wit, which the Earl of Leicester was running against Lord Willoughby, Raleigh, and some other courtiers, by saying, "'We will impeach you of high treason, my lord, if you proceed in this attempt to slay us with laughter.' And here comes the thing may make us all grave at his pleasure, our learned physician masters, with news belike of our poor suppliant, Lady Varney. Nay, my lord, we will not have you leave us, for this being a dispute betwixt married persons, we do not hold our own experience deep enough to decide thereon without good counsel. How now, masters, what thinkest thou of the runaway bride? The smile with which Lester had been speaking, when the queen interrupted him, remained arrested on his lips, as if it had been carved there by the chisel of Michelangelo or of Chantry. And he listened to the speech of the physician with the same immovable cast of countenance. The Lady Varney, gracious sovereign, said the court physician masters, is sullen, and would hold little conference with me touching the state of her health, talking wildly of being soon to plead her own cause before your own presence, and of answering no meaner person's inquiries. "'Now, the heavens forfend,' said the queen. "'We have already suffered from the misconstructions and broils which seem to follow this poor brain-sick lady wherever she comes. "'Think you not so, my lord,' she added, appealing to Lester, with something in her look that indicated regret, even tenderly expressed, for their disagreement of that morning. Lester compelled himself to bow low. The utmost force he could exert was inadequate to the further effort of expressing in words his acquiescence in the Queen's sentiment. "'You are vindictive,' she said, my lord. "'But we will find time and place to punish you. But once more to the same trouble mirth, this Lady Barney, what of her health, masters?' She is sullen, madam, as I already said, replied Masters, and refuses to answer interrogatories, or be amenable to the authority of the mediciner. I conceive her to be possessed with a delirium. 
which I incline to term rather hypochondria and phrenesis, and I think she were best cared for by her husband in his own house, and removed from all this bustle of pageants, which disturbs her weak brain with the most fantastic phantoms. She drops hints as if she were some great person in disguise, some countess or princess, perchance. God help them, such are often the hallucinations of these infirm persons. Nay, then, said the queen, away with her, with all speed. Let Varney care for her with fitting humanity, but let them rid the castle of her forthwith. She will think herself lady of all, I warrant you. It is pity so fair a form, however, should have an infirm understanding. What think you, my lord? It is pity indeed, said the earl, repeating the words like a task which was set him. But perhaps, said Elizabeth, you do not join with us in our opinion of her beauty, and indeed we have known men prefer a statelier and more Juno-like form to that drooping fragile one that hung its head like a broken lily. Ay, men are tyrants, my lord, who esteem the animation of the strife above the triumph of an unresisting conquest, and like sturdy champions, love best those women who can wage contest with them. I could think with you, Rutland, that give my lord of Leicester such a piece of painted wax for a bride, he would have wished her dead ere the end of the honeymoon. As she said this, she looked on Leicester so expressively that, while his heart revolted against the egregious falsehood, he did himself so much violence as to reply in a whisper that Leicester's love was more lowly than her majesty deemed, since it was settled where he could never command, but must ever obey. The queen blushed, and bid him be silent, yet looked as if she expected that he would not obey her commands. But at that moment the flourish of trumpets and kettle-drums from a high balcony, which overlooked the hall, announced the entrance of the maskers, and relieved Lester from the horrible state of constraint and dissimulation in which the result of his own duplicity had placed him. The mask which entered consisted of four separate bands, which followed each other at brief intervals, each consisting of six principal persons and as many torch-bearers, and each representing one of the various nations by which England had at different times been occupied. The aboriginal Britons who first entered were ushered in by two ancient druids, whose hoary hair was crowned with a chaplet of oak, and who bore in their hands branches of mistletoe. The maskers who followed these venerable figures were succeeded by two bards, arrayed in white and bearing harps, which they occasionally touched, singing at the same time certain stanzas of an ancient hymn to Belus, or the sun. The aboriginal Britons had been selected from amongst the tallest and most robust young gentlemen in attendance on the court. Their masks were accommodated with long, shaggy beards and hair. Their vestments were of the hides of wolves and bears, while their legs, arms, and the upper parts of their bodies, being sheathed in flesh-colored silk, on which were traced, in grotesque lines, representations of the heavenly bodies, and of animals and other terrestrial objects, gave them the lively appearance of our painted ancestors, whose freedom was first trenched upon by the Romans. The sons of Rome, who came to civilize as well as to conquer, were next produced before the princely assembly, 
and the manager of the revels had correctly imitated the high crest and military habits of that celebrated people, accommodating them with the light yet strong buckler and the short two-edged sword, the use of which had made them victors of the world. The Roman eagles were borne before them by two standard-bearers, who recited a hymn to Mars, and the classical warriors followed with the grave and haughty step of men who aspired at universal conquest. The third quadrille represented the Saxons, clad in the bearskins which they had brought with them from the German forests, and bearing in their hands the redoubtable battle-axes, which made such havoc among the natives of Britain. They were preceded by two scalds, who chanted the praises of Odin. Last came the knightly Normans, in their mail-shirts and hoods of steel, with all the panoply of chivalry, and marshalled by two minstrels, who sang of war and ladies' love. These four bands entered the spacious hall with the utmost order, a short pause being made, that the spectators might satisfy their curiosity as to each quadrille before the appearance of the next. They then marched completely round the hall, in order the more fully to display themselves, regulating their steps to organs, shalms, hot-boys, and virginals, the music of the lord of Leicester's household. At length the four quadrilles of maskers, ranging their torch-bearers behind them, drew up in their several ranks on the two opposite sides of the hall, so that the Romans confronting the Britons, and the Saxons, the Normans, seemed to look on each other with eyes of wonder, which presently appeared to kindle into anger, expressed by menacing gestures. At the burst of a strain of martial music from the gallery, the maskers drew their swords on all sides, and advanced against each other in the measured steps of a sort of pyrrhic or military dance, clashing their swords against their adversaries' shields, and clattering them against their blades, as they passed each other in the progress of the dance. It was a very pleasant spectacle to see how the various bands, preserving regularity amid motions which seemed to be totally irregular, mixed together and then disengaging themselves, resumed each their own original rank as the music varied. In this symbolic dance were represented the conflicts which had taken place among the various nations which had anciently inhabited Britain. At length, after many mazy evolutions, which afforded great pleasure to the spectators, the sound of a loud-voiced trumpet was heard, as if it blew for instant battle, or for victory won. The maskers instantly ceased their mimic strife, and collecting themselves under their original leaders, or presenters, for such was the appropriate phrase, seemed to share the anxious expectation which the spectators experienced concerning what was next to appear. The doors of the hall were thrown wide, and no less a person entered than the fiend-born Merlin, dressed in a strange and mystical attire, suited to his ambiguous birth and magical power. About him and behind him fluttered or gambled many extraordinary forms, intended to represent the spirits who waited to do his powerful bidding and so much did this part of the pageant interest the menials and others of the lower class then in the castle, that many of them forgot even the reverence due to the queen's presence, so far as to thrust themselves into the lower part of the hall. 
the earl of leicester seeing his officers had some difficulty to repel these intruders without more disturbance than was fitting where the queen was in presence arose and went himself to the bottom of the hall elizabeth at the same time with her usual feeling of the common people requesting that they might be permitted to remain undisturbed to witness the pageant leicester went under this pretext but his real motive was to gain a moment to himself and to relieve his mind were it but for one instant from the dreadful task of hiding under the guise of gaiety and gallantry the lacerating pangs of shame anger remorse and thirst for vengeance he imposed silence by his look and sign upon the vulgar crowd at the lower end of the apartment but instead of instantly returning to wait on her majesty he wrapped his cloak around him and mixing with the crowd stood in some degree an undistinguished spectator of the progress of the mask merlin having entered and advanced into the midst of the hall summoned the presenters of the contending bands around him by a wave of his magical rod and announced to them in a poetical speech that the isle of britain was now commanded by a royal maiden to whom it was the will of fate that they should all do homage and request of her to pronounce on the various pretensions which each set forth to be esteemed the preeminent stock from which the present natives the happy subjects of that angelical princess derived their lineage in obedience to this mandate the bands each moving to solemn music passed in succession before elizabeth doing her as they passed each after the fashion of the people whom they represented the lowest and most devotional homage which she returned with the same gracious courtesy that had marked her whole conduct since she came to kenilworth the presenters of the several masks or quadrilles then alleged each in behalf of his own troop the reasons which they had for claiming preeminence over the rest and when they had been all heard in turn she returned them this gracious answer that she was sorry she was not better qualified to decide upon the doubtful question which had been propounded to her by the direction of the famous merlin but that it seemed to her that no single one of these celebrated nations could claim preeminence over the others as having most contributed to form the englishmen of her own time who unquestionably derived from each of them some worthy attribute of his character thus she said the englishman had from the ancient britain his bold and tameless spirit of freedom from the roman his disciplined courage in war with his love of letters and civilization in time of peace from the saxon his wise and equitable laws and from the chivalrous norman his love of honor and courtesy with his generous desire for glory merlin answered with readiness that it did indeed require that so many choice qualities should meet in the english as might render them in some measure the muster of the perfections of other nations since that alone could render them in some degree deserving of the blessings they enjoyed under the reign of england's elizabeth the music then sounded and the quadrilles together with merlin and his assistants had begun to remove from the crowded hall when leicester who was as we have mentioned stationed for the moment near the bottom of the hall and consequently engaged in some degree in the crowd felt himself pulled by the cloak while a voice whispered in his ear 
my lord, I do desire some instant conference with you. End chapter 37